Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up, everybody? Stacking slabs. Hobby hustle. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. You already know that. I am so excited about these hobby hustles. I can't shut up about them. If you like what you've been hearing here, hit that subscribe button. Tell a friend about Stacking Slabs. It's Friday. This is the moment where you get the opportunity to do me a favor, and that's share some hobby love across your social channels and tell the world if Stacking Slabs is making you happy or if you're learning something. I do appreciate that. I try to bring it from all perspectives. And I've got a rich one here today. I've got my man, Jake Roy, 90s B-ball cards, baby. He is on the Hobby Hustle to talk about his channel, talk about his collecting, and give some advice on what to think about if you're back in the hobby and you want to start looking at 90s cards. I learned so much from this episode, and I think I'm going to get a little wallet heat after this one because... I just want to get on eBay and start digging into some 90s inserts that I didn't even know about it. You're going to probably learn something you didn't know about. Sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation, and talk to you again. All right, everyone. I am super excited for today's conversation. I am joined by Jake Roy, who runs 90s Basketball Card YouTube channel, and you can find him on Instagram. I got to tell you, like, I have got lost recently in his channel going down the rabbit hole. There's a ton of videos, and it is always a blast from the past. I'm someone who was born in 1985, so those 90s years of collecting are near and dear to my heart. I'm excited for the conversation. There's going to be a lot of different directions we go. I'm hoping that some of the insights that come from this conversation will get you to think differently about just 90s cards in general. I know before we hopped on, I told Jake, like, I had been a little reluctant based on just the, you know, junk wax era, this and that. But I think you're going to all find is there's a lot of opportunities to jump in and get some real cool cards and get educated on the market. But without further ado, Jake, welcome to Stacking Slabs, the Hobby Hustle. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Fan of the podcast. I've been listening for a while and uh, really happy to be able to join you and hopefully bring some value to some folks. Totally. And I think like I've been talking about this at some point is like, I got to get these conversations eventually on YouTube because we do record them on video. But as I'm talking with Jake, I'm looking back in his background and it's just like nostalgia central with <laughs> starting lineups, uh, toys, cards, it really just brings this feeling of just happiness over to me. I think like there's so many connection points of when I think about 90s cards and starting lineup figures in the hunt, I think of champion jerseys and going and buying those jerseys of the players that I loved and liked. I guess like Jake, you've like built your brand off of 90s basketball cards and stuff like where did this come from? Obviously, the 90s mean a lot to you, but I'm curious, like, what was the catalyst for building your brand and the channel off of 90s basketball cards? Yeah, for sure. And so it was, when I started, it was really a culmination of a, a lot of different things all at once. So 
I had been following this uh, YouTube channel about wine, actually, from a guy that some people know for different reasons now named Gary V. <laughs> so like I said, I got into wine because of Gary V. And then he started talking about some business stuff and life stuff. And he was talking a lot about making content. So I started thinking about like, okay, you know, maybe that's something that would be fun to do kind of like a, you know, a side hobby. At the same time, I was also starting to kind of revitalize my Penny Hardaway collection and say, okay, you know, some of those dreams that I had of having one copy of each insert, let's actually try to obtain those now that I've got some, you know, some extra spending money and some free time at times, you know, sometimes not as much free time as I'd like. So those were all coming together. I was getting more involved in Facebook groups. There's a Penny Hardaway group that I jumped in, then a 90s group that I jumped in, uh, and then some more general Facebook groups. And I was noticing a lot of people were coming back in or they had questions about stuff from the 90s. And, you know, some of them were bringing back their old cards, you know, pulling them out of their parents' attic or basement or what have you. And, you know, a lot of those questions I was trying to help people with, and I happened to still have that information locked away, <laughs> tucked away nice and neatly from my childhood. So I was answering a lot of questions, but a lot of them were the same questions. Uh, you know, so I was trying to think, what's a better way that I can answer questions and not, you know, be repetitive and, you know, 15 times answering the same question in a week uh, gets a little bit monotonous at times. So I was like, maybe, you know, that's where the content could come in. I could actually make some content and answer some of these questions that folks have. And at the same time, it, it shares some of my enjoyment for collecting and shares some of my journey. It also kind of gives me a little bit of an excuse to rip packs because I love doing that. And <laughs> sometimes it doesn't make as much sense. But then when I can tell my wife, hey, I've got to do a video, uh, you know, what can she say? So, you know, that's kind of a little bit of uh, the snippet. You know, there's a lot of things going on at that, that point in time. And I was also looking for content, you know, to kind of scratch that itch that I had in the hobby. And I couldn't find any basketball content that was current. The only thing I could find was the one podcast called the Basketball Card Podcast, uh, which has now been brought back to life by Adam, which is great. So I was watching or listening to old episodes, but there was nothing on YouTube. You know, there's some general sports card channels but nothing specific to basketball and hardly anything for the 90s. There was one channel that had collector that was showing a few of his 90s basketball cards. So I said, okay, well, clearly there's, uh, you know, some space in this arena for me to not only let me people out there, but also like 90s cards like me, maybe not. So I started it and, uh, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Well, we are all better for it and appreciate you doing it. I think you referenced Adam, and we're definitely going to talk about your article in the Basketball Card Fanatic because that's something I, I definitely want to touch on. I, I guess I'm curious, like the knowledge that you're sharing on a regular basis on your channel, like how much of it is stuff that you just knowledge you have and have acquired over time and how much of it is you like learning new stuff and sharing it? Yeah, it's definitely called culmination. So a lot of the information, like I said, is tucked away from, you know, decades of, <laughs> of collecting, uh, you know, stuff like what was a hot rookie in 1998 opposed to now, you know, stuff like that, obviously is stuff that's from memory, the pack odds, you know, sometimes I remember them, but off the top of my head, you know, most of them I don't. So I have an old collector's Beckett or a Beckett plus, uh, you know, probably from 2010 or so that I reference for pack odds. Cause those don't change over time. <laughs> the prices in there, I don't really paying attention to. And then, you know, when I'm opening a new pack or a new set, a new product, whatever you want to call it, I, you know, I'm kind of digging in and seeing what are the current prices on a lot of those things. Because as a Penny Hardaway collector, you know, I'm not necessarily paying attention to every player. You know, we see a lot of headlines with Jordan cards or sometimes Kobe cards, but, you know, sometimes there's those fringe guys that I don't really pay attention to. You know, I can't tell you what Jerry Stackhouse's card necessarily sells for unless I'm looking it up. 
you know, so that type of stuff, I'm definitely getting that information from eBay, from card ladder, you know, sometimes I'm going and I'm not able to find any recent sales. So I'm looking into, you know, PWCC's, you know, their old database and stuff like that. So price history is definitely the type of thing that I don't have at the top of my head for all players <laughs> in every set. But, you know, a lot of the memories that I share or a lot of uh, the intricate details that I'm looking at with the cards, some of them are things that I've learned recently. Some of them are things that I noticed as a kid. You know, there's one thing I actually saw recently where there's some ghoul in the dark on a card that I never knew about until somebody had pointed it out. So there's always fun things to, there's so much going on in 90s cards. There's always something new to learn. That's the best. And I think like, it's amazing. And there's so much to talk about just based on what you just said, but like, it's incredible the impact in those years that Penny Hardway had on people and fans. Like, I can't tell you how many people I've interacted with in the hobby since being back who have some sort of personal connection with Penny Hardaway. And I was like going back not too long ago, I was watching a Pacers and Magic series in the playoffs when Penny was in his prime. And like, you forget how just dominant and lights out this guy was before he got hurt. What like, it was it the little penny commercials? Was it the shoes? Was it what was your connection with Penny? Because it seems like there's a lot of people out in the hobby who have one. Yeah, so uh, my story is a little bit funny how I got into Penny. So growing up, I had two brothers, so we were all into basketball. And my youngest brother was a big Bulls fan, loved Michael Jordan, and you know, of course, I can't root for the same team as my brother. And of course, the Bulls were, you know, everybody's rooting for the Bulls at that point in time. So at the same time, the Magic were playing very well against the Bulls. They were regularly having playoff duels and, you know, wanting to root for somebody other than my brother. I was looking at the magic team and I'm noticing there's this one guy who looks really good and he's playing really well. He's playing directly against Michael Jordan. So naturally, you know, I gravitated towards Penny and then, yeah, definitely seeing his shoes and the commercials with little Penny didn't hurt any at all. Cause now I'm seeing him everywhere. I'm seeing, Hey, my guy's the best, you know, so there's definitely that rivalry that, that got me into it. But then, you know, even some simple things when I started looking into the cards, just the aesthetics. I like the blue jersey. Blue is my favorite color, or it was when I was a kid. So, you know, the aesthetics also played into it and just kind of, you know, it was all encompassing. It just seemed like a, the right fit. So I could go back to back with my brother and I could also, you know, enjoy the aesthetics of his, his shoes and his cards. Yeah, definitely. And you touched on MJ. There's, we can't have a 90s basketball podcast without talking about MJ. And like for me, when I got back in the hobby, you know, there was just this, you know, the, you had the last dance craze going on. The Michael Jordan card market was out of this world, looking in, digging into inserts and old Jordan stuff, stuff that reminded me of growing up. And so there was that piece where I saw the market, you know, Michael Jordan had a huge market, obviously, and it was going up because he was relevant in that moment. And then there was this other component for me and just thinking about like educating myself on just like, the junk wax era and how I've got all these shoe boxes full of cards that probably aren't worth much, but make me happy. And so there was those two elements as I entered the hobby, you got Michael Jordan cards that like everyone wants and are super expensive. You got all these junk cards that nobody wants, but it's what we grew up on. And then like this, there's this whole other world of cards that like, I just had no insight and didn't really pay attention to, but like they're the desirable Michael Jordan cards or desirable 90s cards that are part of sets and inserts and their serial numbered stuff. So like for me, like digging into your channel, I know you like to talk a lot about 
those like cool cards that like sports card investors would consider cool now because they have some value, but also bring that like nostalgic component home. So I guess for you, like how do you navigate all of those different markets and based on you being a collector of 90s cards, like are you looking at Jordan cards and think about them some way? Do you care about cards that aren't of value, but you grew up with? And then like, what are your thoughts on just this group of like super cool limited insert cards that a lot of people might be attracted to at this point? Yeah, for sure. A lot to unpack there. So, you know, the Jordan stuff, I definitely do look at Jordan cards. You know, my brother still is a Jordan collector. He's not as active as he was when we were kids, but you know, I keep tabs through him a lot of times on Jordan cards, but Jordan cards also presented an interesting opportunity because, you know, it's a card that a lot, if not everybody in the hobby wants. So grabbing a Jordan card as, you know, something for maybe it's, you know, a trade fodder or what have you. I am not opposed to doing it all. I've done it many times. And sometimes, you know, it's less of an expectation of it to go up and it's more of just a, hey, you know, I can get a good deal on this or I think it's cool or whatever. I one example that I have is I bought the 96, 97 Chrome base card of Jordan. I think it was in January for $20, you know, which was the going rate at the time. And, uh, you know, I just thought it was a cool card. You know, this wasn't anything that would have gemmed, you know, it's not a PSA 10. It was a raw card. You know, maybe it would be an eight or a nine if it had graded, but, you know, minimal, if any greening, decent centering uh, was what I was looking for. And then all of a sudden it took off, <laughs> you know. And so at one point that card was selling for, you know, during the last dance, selling for two, $300. So at that point I said, okay, well, I'd be happy to trade this and get something else in my collection. That is something that I truly want to hold on to. So those are some of the situations that happen that, you know, when I grab Jordan cards, those are things that I'll move to get things into my collection because, you know, Penny Hardaway, while a lot of people are interested in Penny and he's, you know, gaining some notoriety back from when we were younger because people are coming back into it. He's not as valuable as a Jordan or a Kobe, nor do I think he he should be. But those are the cards that I enjoy. Those are the cards that I have a lot of memories with. So those are what I want to have in my collection. And I mean, Penny definitely still holds a good amount of value. We just saw his PMG sell for 11 grand. So that's nothing to snuff at. You know, so that's kind of my take on on Jordan. And I definitely enjoy them because of my memories with my brother in those playoff battles. And I always like having some Jordan cards in my collection just for the memories, but also, you know, because I think that they're good to hold on to. And some of them I'll probably always hold on to. I'll never get rid of. It's not like everything that is in my collection is, is up for trade. So I think that kind of gets into the second point of, you know, whether or not something's valuable doesn't dictate if I want it in my collection. You know, sometimes I've gotten cards because I think that they can get moved. But those usually aren't the reasons that I decide to pull the trigger on a card. Unless the deal is too good to be true, which usually it is, then you, you want to stay away for different reasons. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't really matter if I'm pulling, if I'm getting a Michael Finley because I really like the card, I like the picture and I enjoy Michael Finley, or if I'm getting, you know, a Kobe, it doesn't make a big difference to me, the value of it. It's just what I like. You know, and also one of my PC goals is to have one example of a insert from each of the insert sets in the 90s so sometimes it just makes more sense to get one that's more affordable you know if you're looking at some of those rubies maybe bryant reeves is a better one to get than (laughs) trying to get penny hardaway big country shout out on the pod (laughs) (laughs) man i like that's bringing me back to watching him and it's in college in the hype period he had in that last season and obviously it turned translated to a pretty good draft position that maybe didn't translate into a 
pretty good career. I will never forget when the Vancouver Grizzlies at that time had a promotion for kids. I think it was specific for kids, but adults might have gotten involved in it to cut their hair in that high top fade the big country head to get free tickets to the, the game in Vancouver. And there were pictures of droves of kids with this ridiculous haircut. So, I mean, he was like a cultural phenomenon. He was the star for Vancouver for a couple of years. But you're right. He fizzled out pretty quickly. Totally. Oh, second team member. Wow. There we go. There's a stat. I think when he fizzled out, I try to think back to the Vancouver Grizzlies. And one of the guys that like, I know I had a ton of cards of, and actually had like, he was like top three or top five in scoring for a while was uh, Sharif Abdurrahim. Mm-hmm. But like, he's a guy like, and this is why I love digging into like my box of 90s cards because it's like a blast from the past of guys that like were relevant for a time, but then, you know, maybe faded fast. And that might be the theme of the then Vancouver Grizzlies. It seemed like mm-hmm. they had a bunch of guys that maybe had a season or two and then faded. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Sharif, I loved watching Sharif. I feel like he's one of those guys that his style, he didn't have a position. You know, he was a forward, but you know, I could talk forever about him. But he, I feel like, was a bit ahead of his time. If he played today, I wonder how much, you know, more relevant his game would have been or if he just played on a better team. You know, Vancouver, like you said, it seemed like they had good pieces, but they never put them all together. You know, they traded Mike Bibby to the Kings before Mike Bibby got good and they got Jason Williams after Jason Williams, you know, was doing highlights every night, it seemed like, for the Kings. And then that kind of faded when he was in Memphis because they didn't have a lot of talent around him. So, you know, they never really had all those pieces together at the right times, it felt like. So you talking about Sharif not really having a position and me thinking back to his game, would he be, is a comp on him like Bam right now? Would that be a fair comp? You know, I always think about what would be a fair comp for uh, Sharif, and it's one that I struggle with. You know, he's got some elements to me like Draymond, where Draymond is, he plays center, but he's really the size of a small forward or power forward, you know, in your traditional one through five setting. But his game was way, I would say, better than Draymond. You know, he was smooth. He was like, boy, now you're really uh, getting me thinking about who he could translate to. But, you know, I'm failing to think of somebody, you know, he was your six, nine guy that could handle the raw that had decent mid range game. Didn't have much of an outside game, but he could get to the rim. He could rebound. He could handle, he could pass, but his athleticism, you know, was just unbelievable too. I'm thinking like there might be a, like a concept here on a, a podcast idea of just like talking about nineties players and who are their modern day comps. I know. You know, it's funny because, and I'll do this again this year. Last year, I started looking at the draft and the prospects in the draft and comparing them to 90s players. I think that's something that I always do to kind of contextualize the incoming class. So as the we get closer to the draft, I'll, I'll do that again. But, you know, I was looking at somebody like Zion, I compared him to Larry Johnson and Charles Barkley. And if mm. you look at Zion's stats in college, they were almost identical to Larry Johnson's. You know, so I think, and Larry Johnson was a bona fide superstar when he was in Charlotte before he had that back injury. And then, you know, obviously Charles Barkley, one of the best players to never won a championship and, you know, MVPs and all kinds of accolades throughout his career. So I never compare. So grew up in Indiana and in Indianapolis, always been a Pacers fan, but I grew up in like my mentality on like collecting and basketball cards was always, I viewed it from the I started from like the drafts and I would just like memorize all the drafts and then watch the rookies and see what happens. And it was like 92. 
you know, Larry Johnson was number one overall and the grandma Ma thing happened. And I was like, that was my guy. And that I obsessed over him. I became, I wouldn't say I became a Charlotte Hornets fan, but I had the starter jacket. I had all the LJ, the teal, the white, the purple, all the jerseys. And I wanted his cards. That's all I wanted. So I have actually like thought about entering back into the 90s card market and doing it from the perspective of just like going after Larry Johnson because that was my favorite player growing up. And I had not thought about the comp with Zion until you say it, but he was a bona fide superstar. And there's kids like me everywhere that were obsessed with him at the time. Yeah, those cons shoes were everywhere on the playground. Here's one for you. Can Do you know who his cons counterpart was who had the other shoe in the line? Oh boy. I don't, I have no idea. So I actually like, before we started talking, I just went up to a box of cards and literally, this is ironic. I just grabbed like a bunch of cards because I figured there might be talking points, but it was this guy here. And here's the skylights upper deck, Kevin Johnson, the mayor of Sacramento. Oh yeah. He <laughs> did wear the cons. That's right. The mayor of Sacramento. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what, like, that's what I love so much about just the nineties. It's just like, it triggers so many memories. But what I want to do is, because you mentioned, which is an unbelievably aspirational goal of yours to own a card in every insert set, I want to maybe go there. But before I go there, okay, you wrote an article in the Basketball Card Fanatic on most underrated sets of the 90s. And I like read through this thing like two or three times. And it was just like, I got so itchy to start digging into eBay and looking at these cards. But before I did that, I wanted to try to get some perspective on this article is underrated. Like, what do you view as like the rated or by the market? These are the insert sets that matter most. I'd love to like for you to share your perspective on that because I think like people listening will be who might be thinking about 90s cards that might provide them some direction on where to start looking at first as they're kind of along their journey. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think any list of 90s insert cards that is created has to start with the PMGs. You can't go without mentioning the PMGs. You know, so you got the Jordan that sold, and at this point, who knows what that would sell for now, but the Jordan Green, which is number to 10, or it's number to 100, but there's only 10 of those, and then the other 90 are red, you know, selling for an astronomical amount at the time, and now pales in comparison compared to, <laughs> to LeBron. You know, but so you got to start there. I think that's one of the most sought-after sets probably will remain that way for for some time to come, if not forever. You know, both the PMGs, the green, the red, but then also the championship counterpart, which are numbered to 50. I think all three of those kind of get lumped into a category in my mind anyway, uh, altogether. Definitely different values. You know, if you're looking at the Jordan from each one of those, they each hold a very different value (laughs) for sure and rightfully so. But, you know, I just, I kind of put all the PMGs together in one category as one of the most iconic. And I think now... Can I I ask a question on PMGs? So obviously, like listening to podcasts, reading articles, you know, I was expecting you to say that. I'm curious, can you maybe dig in on like, is it the scarcity component? Is it the way they look in the aesthetics? Is it a combination of both? What is it about those cards that they're like, number one with a bullet and everyone else? A majority of people would agree with you. Yeah, so I think the number one thing there is definitely the scarcity. You know, when you've got an insert set that there's only 10 of a copy of a card, you know, that's going to drive some eyeballs. And it's different than when you have the masterpieces or what have you that are one of ones. 
it's only one person can have that. You can't really gauge market based on that. So it's that right level of scarcity that's ridiculously scarce, but multiple people can have a copy of you know a given card. I think that the aesthetics definitely draw people in because it just you know it's one of those things that just pops having a card that's all that color. You know, I talked to a lot of people and I definitely agree that the base version look better with having more color in there. You can see the details and the, the foil etching, you know, but I think that you get something that really draws your eye. You know, if you're scanning through a showcase at a card show, those cards are going to pop out. They're going to draw eyes. It doesn't matter who the player is on it. It's going to get a reaction. And I think that's really what makes people hone in on those. You know, as a kid growing up collecting in the 90s, I didn't care at all about those, to be completely honest, you know. So I probably personally don't prioritize those as much as other people do. But part of the reason that I didn't care about them is because they were so scarce, I never even had a chance to see one. You know, so I covered the things that I saw, whether it's a picture in a Beckett or it was actually at a card show or a card shop. That's a testament to how rare they are, that I was, I've been collecting for as long as I have. I've never gotten one. I've never, you know, <laughs> yeah, I never had a chance to see one when they were, you know, a new product. So I think it's culmination of both, really. That's good perspective. So what else besides uh, PMG would you put up there as like the Mount Rushmore of 90s inserts? Yeah. So I think the next thing that I go to, which is, you know, a true insert, because the PMGs are a parallel. So, you know, kind of put an asterisk next to the insert, yep. I guess. But Jambalaya from EX2001, those cards are, you know, again, another one that really just jumps out at you. They, but this time you've got some die cut in there. You've also got an exclusive checklist with some of the biggest stars at the time. And, you know, those are just gorgeous, the way that the kind of like, almost like a honeycomb lenticular in the background, you know, one of those pennies that at some point will get in my collection. It hasn't happened yet, but it'll happen eventually. But that Jordan's always, if you're looking at a list of top 10 Jordan cards from the 90s, that Jordan's always there. And I think rightfully so. Ridiculously scarce also. Those are ones that if they were serial number, there's some speculation as to how many there would have been. Probably a print run of about two to 400. You know, I see a lot of people say that there are probably 250 copies of each card, you know, so that kind of, you know, drives it home for me how scarce those are. Yeah. So with that, that obviously like the Jordan Jambalaya is a name just during the height of, if there's the Jordan market's always at a height, but just like during last dance craze, it seemed like that card just kept showing up and growing. And um, that's one that I know collectors are it's sought after and if you're unfamiliar definitely just go look up some of those cards like that's what i do when i hear them mentioned i just go look them up and see if it triggers any any memories but there it hits on like again the aesthetic is super cool and then although it might not have a number on the back the speculation of print run drives demand and drives people to those cards for sure and any other of note inserts or parallel sets that yeah. of the 90s that you think matter most? I think so. Then the other two that I would probably make sure to mention are 97, 98 Upper Deck Game Jersey, because those are the first ever cards, NBA cards I want to specify, NBA cards with a piece of a jersey in it. So, you know, jersey cards aren't that rare anymore, but these are all game-worn jerseys. You know, you didn't have any event-worn at that point in time. You didn't have, you know, any shorts on those cards. Those are very rare but also because they were the first they're you know, they kind of have that place of history. And then the other one would be 96, 97 Skybox Autographics, which the, you know, a lot of people point to that as the first pack pulled auto, which not, but it's the first, you know, really full on set. Cause the other pack pulled autos were, you know, Larry Johnson specific set or Dominique Wilkins, which I, I talked about in the, the article. So 
you know, the 96, 97 set, that was the one when you could first actually have like a legitimate shot to pull an autograph out of a pack. And those were uh, spread out across all the Skybox products. So it wasn't just one pack. You could pull a pretty mundane pack of hoops and, and pull an autograph out of it, or you could get Skybox Premium, which was kind of one of their closer to flagship sets and, and get one out of there. That's awesome. Listening to you talk and, you know, talking about Upper Deck and different brands, it leads me to just think about and ask you the question is like, what is your perspective on this style of collecting we had with all of these brands and all of these sets growing up to where we're at now, where with basketball cards, it's Panini and Panini has all of these sub brands. Like as a nineties collector, are you missing out on the different kind of companies that are creating basketball cards or just what are your thoughts and perspective there on where we're at now, as opposed to where we were? Yeah, you know, I definitely miss it. I felt like then and, and looking back also, I, I feel the same way that having those different brands kind of breeded a, a certain sense of competition where they were each trying to, you know, they were seeing what each other was doing and trying to one up each other as far as, you know, what they could push the limits for, you know, how die cut can a card be? How, you know, low certain number can it be? You know, how many design elements can we put in it? What new technology can we can we throw in? You know, I don't see as much of card collecting you know being you know we're not seeing stuff that's pushing the envelope anymore we're pushing the envelope in terms of how many parallels can we see but i think that even somebody from panini would say what they're seeing is stuff like the relatively unique designs like a kaboom from downtown those are some of the most sought after modern sets outside of uh the you know the parallels that we see each year you know i think there was a set called license to dominate you know which captivated me and those are also pretty sought after because they're you know basically case hits or what have you but i think that the design the aesthetics of cards are things that collectors always are going to gravitate towards and i think that for a while we strayed away from that and not us as collectors in the hobby i think us as far as you know the manufacturing companies i think we're starting to see them turn back to that i mean we can even look at a set like the net marvels from donruss took off this year and everybody's like look at these they look like they're comic book heroes and stuff people like that that's what really got us excited about these cards is, is the look of them, you know, more so even in some cases than how scarce they were. I love that perspective. And yeah, it, I don't, it seemed like one minute, no one really cared about the Donruss cards and then the net Marvels took off and all of a sudden the wax prices on those jumped and everyone was trying to hunt the Zion. Absolutely. And, but yeah, I think that's fun. And I don't know, to me, it, maybe it's always this way. But to me, it seems like there is this resurgence of 90s in our culture and people our age who have jobs and some disposable income are turning back to those moments in time that made them happy. So I'm hoping that companies like Panini recognize that and do their due diligence on what we want as collectors and put more of those insert sets back into their main lines because I think the demand is certainly there because it seems like a majority of people that are into cards right now are people in our age bracket and you can't have enough cool inserts for my money right now. Absolutely. I mean, some of the subset cards in 90s sets could have been insert cards in their own right, you know, which is unbelievable when you look at them sometimes and you're like, wait, this is a $5 card. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah, it is cool. Absolutely. Everything doesn't need to be hundreds and thousands of dollars for them to be cool. And that's something I've certainly learned along the way. But want to touch on your article in the Basketball Card Fanatic. You know, 
I love the basketball card fanatic. I was to obviously talked to Adam about it and it's just such an awesome piece of content. And it got, why I liked it is because it got me like not only educated me, but it got me thinking differently about the hobby and different approaches. And I think anytime I can consume content that, that gets me to think about the hobby in a different way, I'm always for that. Your article stood out to me because my connection with 90s cards. And I think you're, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, for people that are out there listening, Jake wrote the 10 most underrated sets of the 90s. So you can all go and you can all read that article. You can actually email the real 27 guy and I'll give you a copy of that first edition. But I'm curious, like there's so many 90s insert sets. What was your process in why those 10 sets and what was your process when creating um, that list? Yeah, definitely. So it was, uh, it was a labor of love for sure. Because you know, when I was talking to Adam about that and he was telling me the idea, I said, this is great because this is what I do all the time. You know, when I'm sitting there, you know, my wife wants to watch something on TV that I'm not too into. <laughs> I'll, I'll grab my phone and go and look at different pictures of inserts. So it was what I ended up actually doing. So kind of behind the creative process is I was going through and, you know, I kind of have a list of different sets that I'm trying to get packs of for the channel or your boxes up for the channel. So I was going through that mixed with, you know, stuff that I, I know off the top of my head because I, you know, might have them. I'm just looking at them. And I, you know, went and grabbed basically like a picture of each insert set that I'm like, ooh, this is a good set that, you know, you don't see on Instagram every day, uh, you know, stuff like that. And that's really what I was going for is insert sets that were rare, what have I was really trying to hone in on some of the rare or significant insert sets that you just don't see. And it's not necessarily because they're, you know, super scarce. It's just, they don't get the hobby love and not that they, you know, are underrated, undervalued, and we need to go in and, you know, hashtag invest, right? But just, you know, they just don't captivate the audience the same way as, as other cards, which, you know, everything's got their, their place. But so that's what I was looking through. And off the top of my head, kind of knowing how scarce some of the cards were, but then going and doing that deeper dive of, okay, I think this was a case hit. Let's go and double check. Was it a case hit? Yeah. Okay. It was a case hit. Good. Okay. No, that one was actually only, you know, one in 24 packs. So that's not as rare. So, you know, I kind of would rank them from there. And then I just bounced it off, you know, some other people that I know in the hobby and said, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. You know, I've got it narrowed down to 15 cards. What do you think? You know, are any of these just cards you think you should take off? And some of them said, yeah, you should take this card off. And I said, no, that one's staying. (laughs) (laughs) You're the owner of this article. (laughs) Exactly. I think this one needs to be there. So there's some of that too. But it also was, you know, going and looking at eBay listings and seeing, you know, what cards, you know, from this set have sold recently. And, you know, do they seem like maybe if I see, let's say like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, the, the Pulsars the rising star pulsars if i'm looking in you know the last one that sold only got like two or three bids on it it tells me that you know there's not a lot of eyeballs on that you know so that's some of the stuff that kind of went into how i picked those 10 it's an incredible article and literally like i have non-basketball related but i've been on this like peyton manning rookie card quest recently and i've just been digging into some of the stuff I didn't even know it exists, but I kept looking at his pulsars and I was just like, I'm obsessing over it. I'm like so close to pulling the trigger. And then I like read your article and saw that you covered it. And I'm like, all right, well, like this uh, set matters. So it's like, it's just so much fun. It's like in natural instinct combined with educational content. And that like some helps direct kind of my mentality and how I approach the hobby sometimes. Was it, Final question on that. Was there anything that based on you coming up in your creative process and publishing the article, was there any, did it cause you 
to take action in any direction, whether it was buying a new card or looking deeper into a set you hadn't looked at in a while? It caused me to kind of kick myself a little bit more on some missed opportunities. <laughs> so going back to that pole stars, you know, and I think I said in the article, you know, the intent is not to hype up any of these cards because in some cases, these are cards I haven't gotten into my collection yet. And I would rather if they stay, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> lower in, in the price point for me. Uh, but yeah, there was actually a fire sale on a Facebook group. I can't remember exactly the, how long ago it was, but there was a penny pulsar that popped up. I was looking at the picture. I was like, is that a pulsar? I can't really tell. And as I was hesitating and looking at other pictures, you know, for anybody who goes into those fire sales in Facebook, they move quickly. And I think the person was asking like 10 or $20 for it. And by the time I realized, okay, yep, that definitely is a pulsar. Let me go grab that because I don't have that in my collection. Somebody else had already, you know, grabbed it, claimed it. So I, I missed out on that and I haven't seen another one for sale since, you know, so I'm like, geez, man, I should have just grabbed it and, you know, kind of let the cards fall where they may after that. But, you know, there are definitely some things like that, that you kind of look back and say, oh, you know, I should have just pulled the trigger back, you know, hindsight being 2020. Yeah. I think we remember more of our misses than we do our, the shots that we make. That's definitely what it drilled home for me in some cases. Absolutely. Well, everyone needs to go check it out. An awesome article and can't hype it up enough. A couple more here. And this is one that I think I heard you talk about it a little bit on your YouTube channel, but I've been getting direct messages about this and like not just one, like a few. I don't know where it's coming from, but I think anyone who's listening, you're the 90s basketball card guy, like your perspective, I think will be valuable. So we're talking about just finest and we're talking about the cover and peeling it or not peeling it. I don't know where it's coming from. There's hype around a certain finest card or whatever, but I have like several people over the last few weeks asking me about this. So share your perspective on finest and peeling or no peeling. Yeah. So I am a firm member of the camp of do not peel. And there's a few reasons for that. First off, the way that I like my cards, I like them the way that they came out of the pack. And that's how they came out of the pack. The other reason that, you know, definitely my take is if I have one and I sell it to somebody else and I took the peel off, you can never put the peel back on. If I'm moving that to somebody else, they have the option if I sell it with the peel on it to take the peel off or leave it with the peel or do whatever they want with it. So, you you know, I think you limit your options if you take the peel off because some people don't want anything to do with a card without the peel. You know, I know in some cases I got some of those in my collection and I said, okay, you know, I need to get this refractor. I got the refractor, but now I need to get one with a peel on. So now I have you know, two refractors and one that's already been peeled. You know, so that's my perspective. And actually when I was doing a little bit more digging, cause I was kind of figuring out for myself, like what do people in the hobby think? And trying to figure out what's the best way to gauge that. And I was asking some other people on Instagram, this is probably two years back, you know, what's your perspective on that? And, you know, they were giving me more of what the market is telling us, right? So, you know, and this is kind of anecdotal, but what I was told and what I've seen kind of play out for the most part is when you take the peel off, it removes about 10% of the value at the open market. So if you see, let's say the Grant Hill finest rookie for 94, if you see one sell with a peel versus without the peel, and they're both, let's say a PSA nine, typically you'll see the one without the peel, even though it's the same grade, you know, relatively the same condition, sell for about 10% less. On the flip side, I've heard a lot of people say that if you take the peel off, it's easier to get a better grade because the surface should be impeccable underneath that peel. So, you know, there's definitely that aspect of, you know, if the peel is damaged, which sometimes they 
come, you know, kind of banged up or what have you, just the cards do in the pack. Or if there's like air bubbles underneath the peel or, or you know, stuff like that, people will take the peel off just because it looks better. Or if they want to grade it, uh, they want it to get that Gen Link 10 or, you know, the 9.5 or whatever. And it's got a better chance to do that without the peel. But, you know, I pulled a round ball roll to refractor of Jordan, which has a peel on it. And we sent it away to get graded and it got a BGS nine. And I think everything was a nine five except for the surface grade, you know, so we could probably crack that and peel it and probably gem, but that's, you know, I'd rather have it with the peel on and I don't really care if it's just that one that's bringing it down a little bit. There it is. I love it. Uh, You just like hit on a lot of like conversations and pieces. You just confirmed a lot that I have heard. So I love that. And I'm with you. Like I've been hunting around some cards that are graded and I'm less interested in cards that have a higher grade without the peel and more interested in lower grades with the peel for what you said is that that's the way it came. Like, so the integrity behind the card I think is important, but I'm glad you could add some perspective there. I guess a few more questions, just closing it out. I'm curious, what sort of advice do you have for people that are back into the hobby and recommendations for navigating the beast that is the 90s card market? Like, What sort of advice would you give people that are interested in dipping their toes back into 90s basketball? Yeah. So I think one of the best things about 90s basketball cards is there's so many entry points you know, regardless of what you want your lane to be, if you want to be a player collector and you want to collect Jordan, but you don't have the means to go, you know, drop what you need to to get a Jambalaya, there are Jordan cards for five, ten dollars And there's Jordan cards that range the price point. And like I talked about earlier, that are really cool looking too. So you don't have to sacrifice anything, you know, kind of picking your lane or if there's a certain set you want, you know, there's, there's players in that set that are going to be more affordable if that's what you want, or there's players that are going to be more expensive if that's what you want. You know, so there's so many lanes it really does behoove somebody before they jump in with both feet to do a lot of research, you know? So whenever somebody's asking me and uh, what I tell them is go in and look on eBay, look up some of the sets, look at the content on YouTube. You know, I don't want to hype up my channel, but go and check the packs that I pull that I rip. There's other channels that also talk and show and discuss nineties cards, you know, really immerse yourself in those cards, you know, and in, and if you're looking on eBay, if you're looking on Instagram and you're looking on YouTube or podcast, you're going to get a sense for what some of the stuff that you like. Uh, and that's the biggest thing that I would say is go for what you like. I know that, you know, having something that's relevant to the hobby definitely makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks. And I get that. But if you don't enjoy it, it's going to sit in your collection and you're going to be like, okay, you know, I'm ready to move this for something else. You know, so a lot of times I'll, I'll talk to people and kind of ask them, okay, well, you know, if you collect a different sport or a different era, what do you like in that era? If you like photography, if you like the designs, if you like the, you know, the shiny and the chrome and the, the prisms, you know, that can lead you down the, the path in the 90s that you'd like. Because, I mean, all these design elements that we see today, they all started in the 90s. You know, so there are parallels that look just like some of the modern cards, if you like the modern cards from the 90s. You know, so I think that if you do that and you do a lot of research before you jump in with both feet, you'll be happier with your decisions and and what you pick up. You know, my thing for my collection is I always grab cards that I'm going to be happy with, even if they're worth zero tomorrow. You know, and that's just how I like collecting. Obviously, we don't want to see our cards be worth nothing. It'd be better if you need to move a card, you can get something decent for a financial return on it. But, you know, that's how I enjoy them best because... I'm looking at it, what could I have done with $100? 
if I have that thought, it's going to dampen how much I enjoy the card. That's really good perspective for anyone who's interested in getting back. Love that. Okay, so I got a couple of 90s related questions before I let you get out of here. I guess first one will be card related. Like to you, what is the most important set of the 90s? And it doesn't need to be value or whatever, but just to you, what means the most and why? Oh boy, like a base set or insert set? Uh, Base set. I would say... 9697 EX 2000. I think that was the set that really changed people's perspectives as to what cards in a base set could be. And, you know, we really started to see a high-end card that was marketed as a high-end card and that brought design elements that backed that up. So I think that's one of those landmark sets that really changed the game from that point forward. Awesome. And now, who is, in your opinion, the most underrated basketball player from the 90s? In terms of their cards or just their play on the court, or both? Play on the court. Who didn't, who didn't get a lot of love, but you think deserves maybe a little more than they get historically? I think Eddie Jones. He's one of those guys that if he had stayed in L.A. longer, and not by his choice, he didn't ask for a trade, we would have seen him next to Kobe, and we would have been like, wow, this is the next Jordan Pippen. You know, Eddie Jones, for those who don't remember or are just starting to get flashbacks, was the only other person on brand Jordan with their own shoe. Now, it wasn't an Eddie Jones shoe. It was the Team Jordan, or they called it something different, but it didn't have his name on it. But he had his own shoe line under the Jordan brand, which is something significant because even today that doesn't happen often. You get the flagship and then you get some of the lesser stuff. So for that to happen while Jordan was still in the league says a lot about Eddie as a player. But also his game was just fun to watch. He was a smooth guy. I mean, he had a lot of elements like Jordan did in his game, just in, you know, a younger and a little bit of a slimmer frame. And I just think that, you know, having left LA a little bit earlier, going to Charlotte after their heyday, so to speak, than being in Miami when they weren't the greatest team, people just didn't see him as much. And I think that if people saw him play, he would have had a lot more fanfare. And, you know, I think he could have been a huge star. It's just so funny you bring up Eddie Jones and I just like, oh, last week I got in an Eddie Jones rabbit hole where I was just consuming (laughs) Eddie Jones information. And one of the things that I thought was intriguing was the one year he played with Kobe, Kobe viewed him as a mentor type. There was the connection where Eddie went to Temple, Kobe was from Philly, obviously. So there was that. And I agree, like I have a ton of Eddie Jones cards and I don't know what it was about him if it was just the Lakers and it was before kind of they rebuild with Kobe, but he was kind of the guy with, you know, Nick Van Exel and, but yeah, he was a hell of a player defensively. He can make plays. I also too got in this rabbit hole where I was like trying to figure out the timing and obviously Vladi Divac got traded to Charlotte for the pick that LA took and ended up with Kobe. And then I got in this thought process of thinking about video games and led me to NBA courtside on uh, Nintendo 64 with Kobe Bryant and how many hours I logged playing that game. (laughs) (laughs) But I agree. Like, I'm glad you brought up that name. I think he was super underrated and and, uh, couldn't agree more. Last question to close it out. What's kind of your golden goose right now in the hobby in terms of a card? What is like something you constantly think about that at some day is like your hobby goal to obtain that card? So 
boy, there's a lot of ways I can go with that. Because, you know, like I said, wanting to get one of every insert set, there's a lot of insert sets that are still on that, that checklist. I'll give you a couple. Specifically thinking about my Penny Hardaway collection. One is the Jambalaya, the game jersey of Penny Hardaway. So the 97-98 game jersey that I talked about. And then the third one is one that I'm, I'm trying to track down. is the 98-99 Star Quest 4-star. It's numbered to 100, so there's not a lot of them. I've had a few shots to get one. You know, one of them most recently had some significant damage on it. You know, so that's one that, you know, if I gut it and it's pretty damaged, it'd be nice to have it, but I'd be seeking one that's in, you know, fair shape. Some other ones that, you know, want to end up being altered, you know, so there's some things that have stopped me from getting them, but also it, it's not a cheap card. So, you know, trying to pick my spot and, you know, maybe amass some stuff that I can make a deal. I've got a nice Jordan card to trade for that. That makes it a little bit easier to, to do that sometimes. So, you know, and that's one that's nostalgic for me too, because I ripped a lot of that set with my dad. My dad loved that set. And we were always saying, what if we get one of these? What if we get the gold? What if we get the gold? And there's a Jordan there. So my brother wanted the Jordan. I wanted the penny. We didn't get a single one of anybody. So there's a lot of things that go into that card. For me. That's awesome. Jake, where can people find you online who want to learn more about 90s basketball cards? Yeah, so you can find me obviously on YouTube. So my YouTube channel is 90s B-Ball Cards. I'm um, 90s underscore B-Ball underscore cards. Twitter, same name, 90s underscore B-Ball underscore cards. I've got a Facebook group. I messed up the name on that. So it's just 90 B-Ball Cards. So check that out. And then I sometimes will post on TikTok, not as often as some folks will, but you know it can be fun at times. So that's 90s underscore B-Ball underscore cards. Awesome. Hopefully you all learned something about 90s b-ball cards i know i did jake thank you so much for your time thank you for having me it's a blast man that was a trip down memory lane so much fun and nostalgia thanks so much jake go check out his youtube channel go hit that follow button on instagram you'll learn a ton i promise you definitely follow me across all the social channels hit that subscribe button take care of yourself take care of others around you Have a great freaking weekend and we'll be back and we'll talk to you again real soon.